The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, please turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Psalm 11. And join me in prayer. Lord, we do pray what we were just led to sing. Revive thy church, O Lord. For your glory, hallelujah, thine the glory, hallelujah, amen, that you would be exalted in a church that loves you, that has the mind of Christ with a life view, that has the love of Christ with a heart for Christ, And not only a life view with the mind of Christ, a life love for the heart of Christ, but a life style to carry out the mission and message and ministry of Christ in this world as your people. Revive thy church, O Lord, and do your work in us. We commit ourselves to you. We open our hearts to you. We only open what you have given us, new hearts in Christ. And we do so with gladness, praying that the thoughts of our heart would instruct our minds and would be manifest in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, it's such a blessing to be with you in this series. I have prayed about it. Can I give you just a little bit of a of an introduction here? In fact, let me give a couple of things. First of all, I want to thank the Lord for Dr. Gibson being with you last week. I got tickled. Um, we went to church, and by the way, those of you that... Uh, like many of us, uh, try to get a week or so a year down at the Gulf Shores in Alabama. Um, and um, that's where we go. And we love to worship at Grace Prez while we're there. And um, our dear uh, Pastor Rick Finnig, um, he came close to meeting Jesus this last four weeks uh, through COVID-19. But the Lord brought him back. And uh, while we were there, it was his first Sunday back in preaching. And it was such a blessing that he had the stamina to be able to finish. So do pray for Grace Prez and, um, uh, there in uh, Foley. Uh, well, yes, Foley, Alabama, just above Gulf Shores there. And uh, it's a great blessing to minister there. Um, the... Um, Of course, on the other side of their church is this Tanger outlet, and I have to keep reminding my wife when we leave, we don't shop on the Lord's Day. And uh, thank the Lord for that uh, Sabbath observance, but uh, but it's just a great blessing to to encourage that church. I do hope and pray that when you're away uh, on vacation that you don't vacate the Lord's Day, and uh, and try to find solid churches and. 
hopefully you're not ashamed to tell them you're from Briarwood because that really seems to encourage other churches when you come and, and tell them that you're there and that it's a joy to be there. It's a great blessing to do that. If you're ever wondering when you're going to be somewhere, if you want some names of some good, solid churches, just give me an email or a message or something, and I'll try to get that to you. But then when we got back, of course, we streamed in Briarwood uh, on the rest of Sunday and um, got a chance to listen to Dr. Gibson, and I'm so grateful for the Lord's blessing. I did get a little tickled with him. He constantly was apologizing for his uh, North Irish uh, accent, the Belfast accent. And uh, but what I got to laughing about is he said he he, he was speaking of um, that the power of the Lord's going to be upon you, and then he said he said I know it's supposed to be power, and I wanted to I wanted to tap him on the shoulder, son. You ain't been in Alabama long. I mean, you're talking our language there. There, we don't talk about power in the blood. There's power in the blood. That's what we that's the way we sing it. And so <laughs> you're just right at home here, Northern Alabama and Southern I mean Northern Ireland and Southern Alabama. Um, let me also say in this series that I'm doing, I want to recommend a couple of books. I've asked Miss Debbie to forgive me for not, I just lost my, um, my bearings to get the message to her, so give her a little bit of time. But in this series, there are three books I'd like to recommend to you that I think you would find extremely helpful. There are others that I may be mentioning along. Um, but this is, uh, these are discipleship books for you, and uh, that I'm going to recommend to you that you get R.C. Sproul's book, Life Views. It's not, it's kind of like a 201 book, but it's a, it, it'll be understandable. You'll enjoy it. I taught it for a high school class at uh, Charlotte Christian, and um, it was, um, uh, it was, and I still get notes from the students that were there in that class, how beneficial it was, and I don't account that to my teaching as much as I do to the content of the book itself. I think you'll find it very helpful. And secondly, uh, another helpful book is actually entitled Foundations. Uh, this book uh, was written by my dear friend uh, Jim Boyce, who's with the Lord now. And uh, Jim wrote this, and his wife made sure it got published and published rightly. She did the editing on it. And this is something he wrote for InterVarsity and also for the, um, one of the, I forgot the Bible study organization, that Bible Study Fellowship. Uh, he wrote this to be uh, given particularly to college students in terms of developing their Christian world and life view. It's called Foundations, and I highly commend it to you. And then thirdly, uh, uh, and the, thirdly is R.C. Sproul's commentary on Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very accessible and very helpful. It's called Truths We Confess. Now, as I give those to you, you may note something uh, in uh, you may note my um, uh, my my desire that you see this series of sermons as an asset for you to develop a Christian world and life view. I am fully aware that you live in times, as I preached a couple of Sundays ago, times because of what is happening outside the church in the culture and what is happening inside the church. Outside the church, 
um, you have this next iteration of what began all the way back in the Enlightenment, and then it began to move and with various cultural movements, and now you have this secular progressivism being enforced with totalitarian or authoritarian governments, and that can be uh, that can be shaky because of things that are now imposed by governmental fiat. Um, in terms of the cultural, the new cultural mandates of life. And I'm not, don't hear that as a mask thing. The, the cultural mandates of how do you view gender? How do you view marriage? How do you view race? How do you view sexuality? How do you view marriage? How do you view Parenting, all of those things that now, um, now the, uh, our government has taken upon itself along with other culture shaper, shaping institutions like the media, like the entertainment industry, like the academy, particularly higher education, and then the use of lower or secondary education as instruments of, of indoctrination of our children, um, in, um, uh, and and so what is happening? I, I'm constantly aware of this because of a program I do called Today in Perspective, and it seems like I, there's no shortage of stories that we have to deal with in news, new events. But what you have in the culture in general under secular progressivism is is the culture and that's why i have also recommend carl truman's book the triumph of self that what you have in a culture is an unabashed declaration of the culture of self and whenever you have this culture of self that is being enforced by the culture shapers of the society, what you end up with is a culture that is marked by insanity, by immorality, and by absurdity. Those are the three markers of the culture of self. Insanity. My goodness, we can't even talk about pronouns any longer. We can't even deal with biological realities in terms of gender. Uh, we are now in this... Uh, we have now gone down the rabbit hole of our culture, and the insanity reigns, immorality uh, is embraced, what is good becomes bad, and what is bad becomes good, and every place where God has declared a binary, whether it's, whether it's good and evil or male and female, whatever it is, the culture of self is in outright rebellion against the Almighty. And the way you rebel against the God who is over the creation and separate from the creation that is in and of himself sufficient is you rebel against all the binaries that he has put in creation. Thus you have a culture of insanity, a culture of absurdity, and a culture that embraces immorality and wants to normalize it. And now, but that, the other, instead of having the church that speaks as salt and light, we now find that the movement of modernity that came out of the enlightenment into the church, that that movement that came, that was manifested in the 19th and 20th century with liberal Christianity has now morphed again and not in the mainline Protestant church any longer because it's already in the dustbin of history. 
history, but now in what used to be churches that um, confidently and courageously would stand in the authority of God's word, that the scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice, now are finding ways to nuance that commitment. And no longer is it biblical magisterium over doctrine in life, but now cultural magisterium. And you find in the evangelical churches a strange silence in the name of ministry on the matters of gender and marriage and sexuality and the sanctity of life. All of these things that God has ordained as sanctified, that he has set apart as holy by his creation fiat, those things now the church is silent about them. Uh, They no longer speak to them. The pulpits find a way to be silent or to nuance it with all of the caveats. By the time they finish speaking of what what they don't believe about it, that you actually wonder if they believe anything about these matters whatsoever. So that can become very fearful for God's people. Well, that's where I think the church has to do its job of evangelism and discipleship. As I have preached now for the last three months, the church has to be on mission, the great commission of make disciples. It has to be on message, a gospel-saturated teaching of the whole counsel of God, that we declare the whole counsel of God, as Jesus said, teaching my disciples to observe all that I have commanded them. That includes life, that includes gender, that includes sexuality, that includes marriage, that includes a biblical view of singleness, that includes all of those things. And that we look to the scripture in these matters to be able to have a framework or a life view to understand. But how do we do that in the midst of everything seemingly crumbling around? I mean, Dr. Gibson was absolutely right. You abandon marriage, you abandon family in the attempt to quote-unquote redefine it. No culture is going to be able to survive that. No culture can. And so what is it that, uh, how is it that we are to, um, how is it that we are to respond in these moments? Well, that's why a couple of weeks ago I preached on the matter of what we can't do. We can't be fearful. And we can't be anxious. Concern? Yes. Biblical concern? Yes. Know how to respond? How then shall we live? Yes. But not fear. Our Savior and His love is perfect. And perfect love casts out all fear. And our Savior stands guard at our hearts so that we can be anxious for nothing. But in everything, bring our cares and concerns to him. How then shall we live by his strength and through his word as to how we are to live? Well, I have been trying to respond to this. Perhaps some of you have picked it up. Our elders hopefully have in terms of how we have talked about the pulpit, um, the pulpit subjects and the pulpit calendar. But there was a reason why I preached on Sunday morning uh, the essential foundations for life from the Apostles' Creed. That I wanted to make sure that God's people had these essentials that have undergirded worship, 
apologetics and discipleship. The Apostles' Creed has been used in apologetics to defend the faith before the world and to defend the faith against false teachers within the church. The Apostles' Creed has been used as an item of worship because of its compilation and distillation of essential truths. And the, and the, and the Apostles' Creed has, has been used for discipleship. We think we're uh, we think we are so advanced with our screens, but actually, if you'll walk into a 16th or 17th century church, guess what you'll find? Their version of screens. You would look up at the pulpit. There would be the high pulpit in the middle, the centrality and authority of God's word preached, and on both sides would have been um, screens. <laughs> Uh, most of the time, they would have been gold in background and black in lettering, and there would have been three documents that people were to read and see as foundational issues of how to put their life together for Christ. One was the Apostles' Creed. There is evangelical true doctrine. The other was the law of God and its right use in evangelism, discipleship, and restraining sin in world, in the world. And then the Lord's Prayer. How then shall we call? Those three documents you would have seen, those were the discipleship tools. That's why when the church in the Reformation, that's why the church in the Reformation, uh, in the, um, uh, in the 16th century, as the Reformation began to move forward and biblical and that the scripture alone was our only rule of faith and practice to be, bring unity in a nation that was undergoing a, a Reformation, that was England, the English Parliament called for an assembly. And that assembly was uh, called, the, that was called the Long Parliament. They were in a conflict with King Charles I and uh, they called for a parliament and they gave then a divine assembly that was called the Westminster Assembly and they told them to come up with a confession that all who would uphold biblical authority could be drawn to and unite around and there embarked a multi uh, just um, uh, months upon months of debate uh, robust vigorous debate and out of that came the Westminster Confession of Faith. And out of that Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, we have this, this statement of the things most surely believed. Now, many people say, well, that was the Presbyterians, wasn't it? No, that actually wasn't just the Presbyterians. It was supposed to replace the 39 articles of the Anglican Church. But after it was done, uh, they looked at it. The, the Baptists said, well, we just can't. There's a couple of things we don't quite agree with. So they went off and did a duplication of the Westminster Confession called the Old London Baptist Confession of 1689. And then in America, they rep reproduced that one. And it's it's called the, old, the Philadelphia Confession of 1743. And those two confessions are the same as the Westminster Confession, almost verbatim, except in two chapters. And that's the chapters on, on sacrifice and church government. And, uh, but those were foundations. And then the European Reformation movement said, well, uh, we're not sure we want to get anglicized here. So they did their own confession and their own catechism called the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. And then you had the Savoy Declaration. So you had a number of things that were coming out, but they were all very similar to each other as they brought the Reformed witness together on the continent of Europe and then in England. And then it began to 
spread through the missionary lanes into Asia and South America and to North Africa and um, and back to North Africa, which used to be the center of Christianity at one time, particularly Alexandria. So that's what was happening. Now, why do I bring that out to you? Because the Westminster Confession uh, is, I believe, the most the most secondarily inspired volume for the Christian in the Christian publications uh, of enormous value, yet is seldom consulted and, and used uh, as it ought to be used. The long parliament thought it was so, uh, it was so exquisitely done and faithful to the scriptures and necessary for discipleship that they told that they told the uh, um, that they told the uh, par- uh, the assembly to continue to meet and to create teaching tools. So they came up with something designed to help fathers disciple their children. It was called the Shorter Catechism to teach the truths that are found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then it was, and then after that, they put together a, another catechism called the Larger Catechism designed for pastors to use to train elders so that they would have a, another in-depth view of biblical doctrine. And I wanted to say that to you because if you'll go look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and if you go look at the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism, guess what you're going to see? You're going to see the Apostles' Creed expounded, all of the elements of the Apostles' Creed enlarged and expounded, the law of God, and the Lord's Prayer. Those three basic elements of discipleship have been in place for 2,000 years. I have brought all that to you in order to say this. As I did the Apostles' Creed and prayed through that series and knowing in my heart that I don't want you to be shaken. I want you to see these moments not fearfully, but confidently and courageously in Christ. Not carelessly. Not, not um, in, a, uh, in a haphazard, serendipity way. No, these are crucial issues. Uh, the well-being of societies and nations are at stake. But as I look at that, I mean, millions of lives are at stake. But what I want you to be is courageous and committed. And, um, and I know that only happens through discipleship. And I thank God for all of our small group Bible studies. Um, just the dozens that we have for our ladies, uh, the men of the covenant studies for our men, the congregational communities. I do hope and pray that you are taking advantage of some of these master teachers that we have on Wednesday nights and the communities are putting together small groups to go to those master teachers, get a round table and have a small group for discussion about what you're hearing from this excellent work of discipleship that you can put together. But I believe the pulpit contributes to that as well. The pulpit ministry, and that's what I've always, one of the things I've loved about Sunday night worship, is that Sunday morning worship, I can just expositionally preach through books of the Bible with forays into topical expository preaching. But on Sunday nights, I can do thematic expository preaching, which is my effort to as I say, pull the trigger. Or if you can think of discipleship not only with 
boots on the ground, life on life, uh, connecting to be discipled in a small group or one-on-one. Think of uh, the battle for souls also being a cannonade, and I think that's what the pulpit provides, is the cannonade to begin to soften up our hearts and get information to us that we can then work from. And that's what I love for Sunday nights to be. So was I going to jump from the Apostles' Creed right to the Westminster Confession of Faith? And I decided, prayed through it diligently. I really did to think through it, and I decided, no, I really believe that's kind of like jumping from 101 to 301. I so appreciated the feedback from the Apostles' Creed, the essential foundations. And I wanted to get to what um, what may be 301 doctrine and Westminster Confession of Faith. But I felt there was a place in between. Uh, Dr. Boyce uh, was convinced of that, which is why he did that book, Foundations, that I think can be a good parallel book for you to read. That there is something, there is something in between the Apostles' Creed and the Westminster Confession of Faith that we can go at, and I felt the best way to do it was to get back to the Word of God in general, but get to what the Bible says through the initial book of God revealing to us sanctified foundations for life. The book of origins. There is a reason that the one book of the Bible that's most distorted is the book of Revelation. And the, and the one book of the Bible that's perhaps the most attacked is the book of Genesis. It is the book of origin. I am going to try to lay out for you 15 sanctities of foundations for the Christian life that are right there in the book of Genesis. Now, we won't stop in the book of Genesis. We'll trace them to some other passages, but they're right there in the book of Genesis. These are foundations for life so that you're not shook with what you see in the culture of self, self, with its insanity, its immorality, and its absurdities. But you're not shaken by it. You're not running off to another Savior. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. As Christians, I want you to be equipped to move into every sphere of society. Corporate America, political America, um, uh, journalistic uh, media, America, the academy. At one time, 90% of the higher education um, institutions in America were under the oversight of evangelical Christianity. And we withdrew from that. And it was wrong. I want us to move into every sphere of society. But I don't want you to go to any sphere of society thinking that is the key to the hearts of men and women and the culture. The answer is not in the next election. The answer is not in the next uh, corporate initiative. The answer is in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment and the Great Commitment of God's people. To evangelize and disciple and turn out Christians who are salt of the earth and light of the world. 
That's where the answer is. There's no one shot, quick, silver bullet that's going to turn it around. Now, can God bring a sweeping gospel awakening? Absolutely. Do I pray for it? Absolutely. But in the meantime, I want to keep oil in my lamp and keep burning every day until the day he comes. That's what God, I believe, has called us to do. So what I would like to do is to take that 201 level of foundations and bring it to bear upon you. But let me bring it within a certain context that's found right in Psalm 11. Would you look with me in Psalm 11? This is a Psalm of David. And I want to begin in the, uh, you see that it is uh, a declaration that the Lord is in his holy temple is the way it's been entitled. It was to be sung, this psalm was to be sung, and it was given to the choir master, and it's a psalm of David that's been given to us. Now here is what David confesses. Look at David's confession. In the Lord I take refuge. He plants his flag. One of the things, as I was sitting there thinking about all of our kids that are now able to go to the children's choir and learn how to worship um, musically and uh, what they'll learn through that in the children's choirs and grateful for that. But as they're doing that and as I was praying through that uh, for them, I couldn't help but think about one of the things I've really missed the last couple of years was I wasn't able to have my meeting with college students before they went off from Briarwood. Now, we're still going down to meet them uh, throughout the year, Max and I, but uh, but I didn't have the opportunity to meet with them. And one of the things I try to tell them, look, I'm going to give you six weeks to find a church, but plant the flag, raise the colors, get in a church, get in a college ministry, get some college friends and start telling anybody and everybody you can, I'm a Christian. Get it out there. Let them know it. I'm not talking about in a self-serving, arrogant way. Just let people know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That's what David's doing. He's planting his flag. Where do I take refuge? I take refuge in the Lord. There is my confidence. It is in the Lord. But the problem is, some of his counselors... Some of his advisors did not have that confidence in the Lord. We don't know when this psalm was written. We don't know whether it was during apostasy of his sons, internal conspiracies. I believe it was written in the midst of one of the onslaughts of the Philistines because of the language that is used. But here's what we do know. It is a time of crisis. It is a time of crisis. And in the midst of crisis, David makes this declaration. In the Lord is my refuge. But that's not what was being advised to him. Here was the advice from the culture of fear that had developed even within his even within his realm of reign, even within his kingship. 
How can you say to my soul? They weren't just whispering in his ear. He had counselors of fear that were speaking to his soul. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? That is, go flee away from the crisis that's before you. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, look. See what his counselors say? Look, the wicked. There's the wicked out there. They're outside. They're inside. They're all around us. And see, the bow is bent. The bow has been feathered. The arrow has been strung. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string and they shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. In other words, they're not even waiting for a good shot. They are trying to hit God's people in the heart. They're, they're, they aren't looking at livelihood. They're looking at taking our lives. And they have their, they have their weapons of war against us. They have strung them. They are prepared. They have bent the bow. They have been cut loose and they're coming upon us. David, we got to get out of here. We've got to turn tail and run. Let's get out of here. Let's get to the mountain. Let's go so fast that the birds are in our wake. Let's flee not to God's mountain, but to your mountain. Not to the refuge of God and the mountain of God, but to your own refuge. That's what we need to do. And then comes their dire warning. And it's an accurate warning. If the foundations are destroyed, then what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the, our whole life is built upon the foundations that God has put in place. The enemies of God are now assaulting the people of God and the foundations of God. And if the foundations are destroyed, then what can we do? I know you, like me, have probably been somewhat um, absorbed, uh, perhaps like no other time uh, in the 9-11 issues that we prayed about this morning and uh, remembering uh, what had happened. And uh, a lot of people ask me, uh, Pastor, what happened to all of that unity that we had for, what did it last, six weeks? Why did it disappear so quickly? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm actually going to answer that question this Wednesday on Today in Perspective, if you'd like to tune in. I'll try to answer it too, but I'm going to give you some. Can I give you one of the things? Do you know why we were able to be unified at that time? Because we saw something that was evil and we were willing to call it evil, but before long we could no longer call it evil because to call that evil, we had to look at ourselves and our own lives and our own ethics personally, corporately, and nationally. Now, Pastor, are you running down America? No, I'm not running down America. I'm just telling you, we are the biggest purveyor of pornography, and we have a genocidal assault on the unborn. And it's hard to call people killing the innocent evil when you're doing the same thing. And 
And so because we could no longer call it what it is, then the unity began to dissipate, not only for that reason, but other reasons. But when I was looking at the, at the, um, at one program recently trying to go back and think my way through it some, as I was looking through it, uh, and I watched those towers come down, and the intense heat as I was listening to a couple of engineers talk about it, and way outside of my field of, of expertise, that's for sure, but I was listening to them and they talked about how the heat was being conducted and it kept going down and down until the very things that all of that weight rested upon could no longer hold it up. It was compromised. If the foundations are destroyed, I don't care how big the superstructure is. I don't care how beautiful the capstone is. If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? What will the righteous do? And I'm going to try to say this very carefully. And I'm going to try to say it very pointedly. But you're watching the foundations under assault in a culture. And, and with the evangelical church, and not only do you have secular progressivism in the culture, but you've got religious progressivism, progressive Christianity in the evangelical church. And the loss of ability to teach sound doctrine in the whole counsel of God. A loss of the efficacy and the confidence in the gospel of God. If that is destroyed... What will the righteous do? I don't care how pretty the steeples are on the churches. What happens when the foundations are destroyed? Now, folks, listen to me carefully. I will speak to the issues of foundations in the culture with a biblical world and life view on public policy. Because I love my neighbor. And I will continue to speak to the issue of historic biblical Christianity and faithfulness to theological fidelity because I love Christ's church. But if the foundations of a church are destroyed because no one is putting any, any confidence to it, let me assure you, the foundations of Christ. And his true church will never be destroyed. I will build my church. Denominations may come and go. I don't want mine to go. But if it does through apostasy or carelessness, I know Christ is the foundation. And he will not fail. And I know his church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it will not fail. And when he comes, then it will be like that church will be like you just sung. Waiting for her groom. On mission. On message. And in ministry. My confidence is not in this culture. My confidence is not in every expression of Christ's church. 
It's in the Lord I take refuge. And his foundations will stand. They cannot be shaken. They cannot be shaken if we embrace them and understand them. That's why David, how does David respond to this? Go with me a little bit further. What is David's response to what they just said? His response is simply this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Here is God, majestic and sovereign, ruling from the heavens. Here is God, present in his temple, his faithful church. He dwells within her. He indwells his people who belong to him. Their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and they will stand in Christ. He indwells local churches that are faithful to Christ. They will stand for Christ. His confidence is in the Lord, his sovereign rule from the heavens and his powerful presence upon the earth. There's where David put his confidence and that was his answer to the culture of fear from his counselors who were telling him to flee all's lost no no the lord is victor christos victor he has won the victory for our soul his church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it And he will accomplish his purposes because he is in the midst of his true people and his true church. My job is not to be fearful. My job and my calling is to be faithful as a Christian, faithful as a pastor, and try to lead a church to faithfulness and impact all of those who join us with a like profession of faith in our confession and with confidence in the Lord. It is in the Lord that we take refuge. And just to remind us, this Lord who is sovereign, see what he says? His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. What is the Lord doing with these things that would cause you to fear and run? Here's what he tells his counselors. The Lord is working on us. The Lord is using this adversity to test the righteous. And what will he do with the wicked? Those that don't repent, here's what he does. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. I think he's looking at two things. God is sovereign in the heavens. He dwells in his people. He is using the adversity of the wicked to form and frame his people. We, it is, it is in the fiery ordeals that we are, the dross is being burned away. It is in the, it is in the adversity that the true believer is growing with their, with their confidence in the Lord. As for the wicked whom he is using to, to mature his people and mobilize his people and multiply his people, as to those wicked they stand if they don't repent under the judgment of God and the picture is the picture of a Sodom and Gomorrah or the picture of Gehenna in the torment of hell God is sovereign and the soul that sinneth shall surely die 
The Lord, here's what he says finally, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, not those who are tempting to provide a righteous for salvation. No, the Lord's righteousness is our salvation. We covered that this morning. But a people who pursue righteousness out of love for the Lord, not for salvation, but for their Savior. And this is what he says. Don't you love it? The Lord is my refuge, and the upright shall see his face. There is his confidence. So we enter in not with fear, not with uncontrolled anxieties, certainly valid concerns, but we enter in knowing in days like this, God is doing a work in the hearts and souls of his people and his true church. And his true church and believers in moments like this don't run to the hills. Do y'all remember, I was searching for an illustration on this. Uh, do y'all happen to remember, do y'all happen to remember a uh, um, something called Y2K? Did you know I had people, I pastored in Charlotte and I was just coming here at the time in 1999. And um, I didn't know what I was going to meet here because I knew what I was meeting in Charlotte. I had people that were mad at me and leaving the church uh, because I wasn't uh, out campaigning Y2K and telling everybody that's the end of the world. Didn't you know that the computers are going to break in 2000 and everything's going to fall apart? And, and, there, and then there's this, and then there was this one daughter church that we planted. They only had three elders and one of the elders was leaving the church. He had bought 50 acres in the mountains of North Carolina, had built a fence around it and was going up there to live with his children. And they said, would you talk with him? I said, sure. And I went to talk with him. And he said, Harry, you don't understand. This is the end of the world. I said, so what? I think that's the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And that means Jesus comes back. Yeah, but you don't be so cavalier. I got children to think about. Well, hopefully your evangelism and you're getting them ready for the new heavens and the new earth. What are they learning from your fear? What will that do in the day of their adversity? I still didn't make a dent, so I pulled out my last gun. I mean, he couldn't fire me. He was an elder in another church. So I pulled out my other gun. I said, you're an elder. You stand in the legacy of the overseer, Christ. And when the adversity comes upon the sheep, what does the great shepherd do? Run to the hills? Or lay down his life for the sheep? Folks, we can't live that way unless we think biblically. So what I'm asking you is to go through these weeks with me using the book of Genesis to identify the Lord's, whom we put our confidence in, His foundations, His sanctities. What has He divinely designed as a foundation for our lives through three things? Creation, redemption, and providence. God, your creator, 
God your redeemer, God your provider. Genesis tells you those sanctities that he brings as creator, redeemer, and sustainer so that your foundations are sure. The Lord is your refuge, and we will not be shaken. Our answer is the Lord is our refuge, so we're going to take a look at God's blueprint. And what is what is that blueprint that he has given us as creator, redeemer, and sustainer? I am so looking forward to these. I am so looking forward to going through them with you. The sanctity of life, the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of God's revealed word, the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of the days of creation, the sanctity of the Sabbath, the sanctity of work, the sanctity of rest. Don't try to write them down. I'll give them to you later. We'll give a whole sermon to each one of them probably. And so we're going to walk our way through that. What God gives to us in the book of origins and then unfolds for us in the next 65 books. All through the preeminence, prominence, and proclamation of Christ our Lord and Savior. We will not be shaken. For God is our refuge. A very present help. He dwells in his temple. And he rules from the heavens. And he uses the adversary and adversity to mature and multiply and mobilize his people. As the test of life comes and we flee not to our mountains, but we flee to Christ. In him we take refuge. And we embrace the foundations that he has ordained as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. The year, I think it was 1968. And in 1968, uh, there was a astronaut, uh, Scott, I think his name was Andrews. And he was the first astronaut, along with his companions, that we sent to orbit the moon. He didn't land on it. He orbited it. And on Christmas Eve, the crackling voice from Apollo 8 came as he came around the moon. And as he came around the moon... He said that he looked, the first man to look at the earth rising on the horizon of another sphere. And this startling blue planet that God has designed for our home, that God has put for us to inhabit and use for his glory. He looked, and out of his mouth from his heart came these words, which is where we're headed. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. That's where we're headed, that book. God, our glorious creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Wasn't it interesting how when he saw the handiwork of God, he was evoked to praise. A couple of verses, well, I remember when I was reading that this week, a couple of verses captured my mind and my heart. May the praise of God cover the earth as the waters, those blue waters, covers the sea. And then all the way from the other side of the moon, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Do we enter into these days with hearts of praise and confidence that the Lord is our refuge and his foundations that he sovereignly rules over, his foundations where he is present with us cannot be shaken. Now, O God, teach us the foundations of life from Genesis. And that's how we'll learn lifestyle stewardship. You have to have a life view to filter everything and to frame everything. Because out there are unbelievably gifted people trying to give you their filter and their frame. And they've got you about eight hours a day I've got you 48 minutes. And if you come back Sunday night, another 48 minutes. But God's word is with you every day. Dig deep and see the foundations. And then with a life view that you embrace because of a life love, the love of Christ compels you. Now we're ready for a lifestyle that is not governed by fear but that walks in faithfulness and isn't looking to the false messiahs, but is looking to bring the claims of Christ to every sphere of society. Our God reigns. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the love of Christ that you have shown to us as our Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. Thank you for giving us your word. As we work our way through it, would you help us understand the very foundations of the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. God, we do this not simply to be relieved of fears and anxieties. We do this to be ready to serve you as soldiers of Christ, servants of Christ, harvesters for Christ, ambassadors of Christ, who live with the perfect love of Christ, anointing us and propelling us, So give us a heart for Christ, the mind of Christ, and lives built on the unshakable foundations of Christ. In the Lord, we take our refuge. O God, our help 
in ages past. Our hope for years to come. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200. 